11. Isaiah chapter 11, this uh, last Advent Sunday uh, before Christmas Day. We're on the uh, fourth and final sermon of our series, The Advent in the Old Testament. If you remember in Genesis 3.15, we looked at the promise that the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent. Then we saw in Isaiah 7 that there was a promise of Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Last week we saw in Isaiah 9 that the child that is born will make all the difference in the world. And today we're going to focus on Isaiah 11 and the significance that we'll see that the Messiah is from the root of Jesse. Now, just one more time, we're going to go through our context. And if you remember that Ahaz, the king of Judah, constructed a plan to rescue Judah from the king of, the king of Syria and from the king of Israel. His plan was to go to Assyria, the rising empire to the north. And so if, if you want to throw out the, the, the concept here, here's the concept. He wanted to protect himself from a couple playground bullies by appealing to a much bigger playground bully. Does that make sense? Everybody knows that one, right? Um, And and so Judah's being threatened by these guys. Well, God, through Isaiah, told Ahaz, look, don't make that alliance with Assyria. You don't need the Assyrians. You have something much bigger and greater than the Assyrians, and that is me, and I'm going to provide the the defense you need there in Judah. I am your source of strength and help. Well, Isaiah 10 is the background for the passage that we're going to read today. So if you have your Bibles open, God promised this. He he, He told him, look, I'm going to take you into exile, and then I'm going to bring some of you back. And when I bring some of you back, It's not without some problems for Assyria. Look at verses um, 33 and 34. What he's, he's talking about bringing the remnant back and some of the effects. And he says in verse number 33 of chapter 10, behold, the Lord of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great height will be hewn, uh, the great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon shall fall by the majestic one. Basically, God's destruction of the the proud forest of the Assyrian Empire will leave it with just a field of stumps. Kind of like a Christmas tree farm after Christmas Day, right? Both Jacob and Assyria have fallen under judgment. Remember, God judged Jacob, sent them into exile. God judged Assyria. In 609 BC, they were cut down by the Babylonians and the Medes. And nothing ever arose from the stumps of Assyria again. But Jacob is different. And that's where we find ourselves today in Isaiah chapter 11. If you'll stand with me, we'll read Isaiah 11. There shall come forth from the shoot, I'm sorry, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Uh, 
And the Lord, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equality, with equality for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall, he shall kill the wicked. I'll stop right here, continue reading, but let me just say this. There are, there are so many images in these verses that are carried into the New Testament. I could spend several weeks just going through all the images that you find here in, that are referenced in the New Testament. But we're going to keep reading in uh, verse number five. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall uh, put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mount, mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the promise of the root, a, a shoot will come forth from the root of Jesse. We, we know what that is. We've experienced it, Lord. We have seen Jesus uh, birth in Bethlehem. I pray that now today you will fill us with joy in, in the truth uh, that is presented here and also that you will cause us to think clearly and closely about our own Christian lives and how that we can become more conformed uh, to the image of your son by uh, yielding to the spirit of the Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you so much. I want you to notice verse number one with me again. Look at verse number one with me. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, God is saying that his people will suffer judgment. The, the line of Davidic kings will appear almost completely destroyed. Think about it with me for just a moment. You know your history. Uh, uh, I believe it was uh, Zedekiah, Zedekiah was taken into Babylon, or Jeconiah, I can't remember which one it was now. Somebody can correct me. And uh, he ate at the table of the king of Babylon. Uh, there were puppet kings for a while. Then finally, the whole nation was brought into exile. They come out of exile, and when they come out of exile, there is no Davidic king that becomes king of Israel once again. There are some that are set up as, as almost like provincial or regional governors, but it's almost like the line of Davidic kings will almost disappear completely. Nothing but a stump of a once fruitful olive tree will remain. But here's what we need to remember. The roots of that stump remain intact and therefore, from them will spring a shoot, a branch that will bear fruit. And of course, we know him as Jesus Christ, 
the son of David, the one and final true king, don't we? Yeah, we do. Now, fast, that's fast forwarding 700 years when we start talking about King David, uh, the, the, the Messiah. And um, the, for 700 years, there's been no Davidic king on the throne since the exile, and they're oppressed by the Romans. The, but the people of Israel seem to know that the next Davidic king was the Messiah. If you look at the extra-biblical writings, they, they all assume the next king of David, son of David, is going to be the Messiah. They just knew that there was not going to be another Davidic king on the throne until the uh, Messiah came. And, and so there was this messianic hope. And I know I've told you this before, but it's worth retelling. Look at verse number one one more time. You see how the Bible says that a branch from his roots will come up? That word branch is the word netzer, netzer. And netzer means shoot. Olive trees, if you see a, an untended olive tree in Israel, there are dozens of shoots coming from the roots. Uh, we would call them suckers, wouldn't we? But these are, these are the shoots coming up. They have shoots all around the ground. And so the Israelites would take these shoots and replant them, and they would grow roots, and up would, would spring a new olive tree. Now, interestingly enough, the word Nazareth is from that root word Netzer. Netzereth is the way that they would say it. Uh, we Americanize it to Nazareth. But the people who settled in Nazareth, this is very interesting. The, the, many of the people who settled in Nazareth after the Babylonian in, um, exile were originally from Bethlehem. Now keep track with me, ready? They knew this prophecy from Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Now understanding that our passage today, Isaiah 11.1, 1, said a new shoot, a replanted shoot, would come from the stump, the stump of Jesse, and knowing what they know about Micah 5.2, that um, the, it would come from Bethlehem, many of the mothers around the time of Jesus' birth, many of the mothers who were pregnant with child would say, I wonder if my child was going to be the Messiah. That was their messianic hope. And everybody around them thought they were absolutely crazy, nuts. But you know what? They're absolutely right. Because one day, a virgin from Nazareth went to Bethlehem and gave birth to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful prophecy when you put those together? Only God could stitch this together with a census of a king who did not know him to make all these prophecies come true. Now, verses 2 to 9 tell us about his nobility, about the absolute justice of his rule and the blessings of his rule. So let's look at his nobility just real quick in verse number 2, verses 2 and 3. Uh, the nobility of the rule of the Messiah. 
in a way that will surpass anyone before or since in his human nature, Jesus Christ will be endowed with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, Isaiah says in this verse, doesn't he? And the fullness of the Spirit will produce in him six characteristics. Six characteristics will fit him for the office of Messianic King. Let's just look at the list real quick. It says that he will have a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, and a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And these are the attributes of a great king. He understands what we need and what he needs for, uh, to do for us. He has the wisdom to respond well to every challenge, to every, meet every crisis. He has the power to affect lasting change. And above all else, he trembles in awe and reverence before the Lord his God. That's the Messiah. You look at his life and ministry in in the Gospels and you see his wisdom confounded the wisdom of all the men that were against him. His wisdom knew the right word to say, knew when to heal, knew how to do things. Everything that he did was perfectly in the will of God because he was endowed fully with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Now, what do we learn from this when we see the the endowment of our Messiah? Well, first of all, we learn that when we as believers uh, put our trust in the Lord, uh, we are doing well. But when we put our hope and our trust in anything other than God, we can expect him to deal ruthlessly with that in which we put our trust and our hope, right? He does. Anything that we put our trust, uh, we find our satisfaction in that is not God, and we put it over and above God because he loves us, uh, he will not let us rest in those things. If we do rest in them, we lose him. You'll lose rest, you'll lose your future, you'll lose your real hope if you place your hope and your rest in anything that's not God. And we see how ruthlessly he's ready to deal with Assyria when the king of Judah places his trust in Assyria as opposed to in the living God. And he's ready to cut it down to the ground for the sake of his people because he wants his people to trust in him and him alone. But there's a second lesson that we see from this, and that is this. You, dear believer, you, every single one of you, have everything that you need to please him in this life. You have everything you need to make wise, God-pleasing decisions in this life. Think about this for just a minute. This is so exciting. The spirit of the Lord rested on the Messiah right? And when you look through the Gospels, over and over and over, the Gospel says he did this through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowered him. The Holy Spirit gave him wisdom. The Holy Spirit gave him the power to produce miracles. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He told his disciples this amazing promise, and this is for all of you. Listen. Are you listening? That same Holy Spirit that empowered Christ in his ministry is now dwelling in you. 
John 14, John 16, he said, I must go, but it's to your advantage. Why? Because when I go, that same spirit that empowers my ministry will now empower your ministry. Isn't that wonderful? That is. Why is it then, and here's my question, why is it then that Christ perfectly discerned everything to do in every situation, perfectly obeyed God, and had so much power for ministry, and we do not? Why is that? Well, you know, he's the son of God. He's perfect. I understand that. But there's a reason for that other than him being the son of God. You ready? The answer is sin and weights. Sin and weights prevent us from obeying God, from having the biblical wisdom that we should. The more you conform to the image of the Son by putting off sin and yielding to the the Holy Spirit, the more godly wisdom will be displayed in your life. Because of our sinful nature, our decisions are clouded by our own sinful preferences, aren't they? We like to verbalize that, but we don't actually like to acknowledge when we know that a decision is that way, do we? We, that is how I, I um, and, and this, this sinfulness in our hearts blinds us. The Bible says that sin blinds. And, and that is how I have had people tell me that their sinful decision is in the will of God. For example, I've had more than one person tell me that their adulterous relationship is in the will of God. And they've looked at me and said, you know, we pray together, we go to church and we worship together, and you have no idea how it feels. And I think to myself, you're feeling something, but it's not the spirit of God that you're feeling in your heart, right? The only way somebody can arrive at that conclusion is that sin blinds. God's people have been horrible at dealing with wealth, and that includes us. Go all the way back to the Old Testament. God said to the Israelites, when you come into the land and you become rich, you're going to forsake me. Has it changed? It hasn't changed, has it? Wealth gives us options that are not available to the poor. When Jesus gave the parable of the soils, now what's the parable of the soils about? It's about the effects of the gospel on a person's life. Three of those soils were not converted by that gospel seed. Only one was, right? The fruitful soil. We know that. But do you remember the thorny soil? Jesus, in his interpretation, said the cares of this world, cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked out the word so it had no effect. And do you realize that the same principle, even though that was the principle of salvation, that same principle holds true for our lives, even as believers. The spiritual principle is the same. We have to be very careful with our great riches. There's so many things that distract. The author of Hebrews calls them weights, doesn't he? 
He tells us to lay aside every weight. So weight is something that's good that is distracting us from what is best. Lay aside the weight and the sin that so clings so closely, or the King James says, so easily besets us. We think nothing of being gone multiple weekends, skipping worship service uh, during the summertime. I'm going to take a trip this weekend, and a trip this weekend, and a trip this weekend, and a trip this weekend, and, and we miss worship services. I'm going to tell you something, dear brother, sister, that's a weight, because the best thing is to worship, isn't it? Now, I'm not saying don't take trips, but there has to be some gauge here. If you're gone eight weeks during the summertime or something like that, you see what I'm saying? There was a, there was a, a, a situation in my last church. Now, realize we're northern Wisconsin. It snowed so many times on Good Friday, it's unbelievable. Easter egg hunts had to be canceled because there was a foot of snow on the ground, right? The place is cold. If you've lived up there, you know what I'm talking about. So the Christian school uh, administrator, the easiest thing for him to do was to schedule spring break the week before Easter. Now what happens when you live in a cold climate and you get a week break? You go to Florida. Seriously, 24 hours is how long it took to drive. They, by the way, people up there, they never fly. You know, if, when I went to Idaho, well, how long is it going to take you to drive? No, you don't understand. I'm flying to Idaho. I'm not going to drive 40 hours to Idaho, okay? So what do they do? Friday night after school, they drive 24 hours to Florida. The, and the cold, you're so tired of the cold, you want to spend every minute in the sun. And so get this, Easter Sunday, the day of all days that we should celebrate the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us. They're all driving back and not worshiping the Lord on Easter Sunday. You see what I'm saying? That's a wait. So I, I went to the Christian school minister and I said, do you mind moving spring break? Seriously, our attendance was lower on Easter Sunday than in any of the previous weeks because everybody went to Florida or went to Alabama or, or somewhere warm to get out of the cold. Now, you say, why didn't you just come back a day early? Wouldn't that be easier? Come back a day early and worship with us. So you, you have to understand, we are so deceived by, by weights. We have to really think this through. You know, I, I'm never bored. I've, I've never complained about being bored. There are so many things that interest me. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's woodworking, astronomy, metalworking. I've never gotten into metalworking, but that amazes me. Um, airplanes, there was a time when every spare chance I got, I was reading about airplanes. But these are all weights, and people sometimes w uh, wear these things as a badge. Everything interests me. That's, that, there's nothing wrong with that. But the real badge is to say this. There are so many things that interest me, but Lord, I'm gonna put those off because I really wanna pursue you. That's what Jesus did. Jesus pursued God and God alone. He delighted in the fear of the Lord. So, so I'm asking, dear believer, are you yielding to the Holy Spirit by actively putting off weights and sin and putting on righteousness because um, uh, the, the author of, of Peter, or Second Peter, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Second Peter said this. He said, put on holiness. 
For without it, you will not see the Lord. And if you want spiritual discernment in all your situations, you have to live a holy life. You have to choose. I'm going to please God above anything else. I'm even going to please God more than I'm going to try to please myself, you see? And so Jesus did that. That's why his ministry, now he was God. I understand that. But part of the power of his ministry came from the holiness of his life. And we can have part of that spiritual discernment and power by, by putting off weights and sin. But I want you to see something else. Notice also the absolute justice of his rule. Look at verse number three with us. Verse number three, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now you'll have people tell you, uh, you know, we need to be careful about fearing the Lord. Well, here's Jesus Christ and it says his delight is in the fear of the Lord, right? But let's keep reading. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You know what these characteristics are? They're simply the application of verse number two. They're the application of the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. The wisdom of the Holy Spirit gives you is this application. The wisdom and the knowledge and the power and the fear of the Lord with which the Spirit endowed humanity of our Savior, qualifying him to rule, are now applied and worked out as he takes up that great work. I want you to notice here that his rule is primarily marked by what? Justice and righteousness in judgment. He shall not judge by what he sees. He will not decide by what his ears hear. So unlike Jesus are we. We judge a book by its cover all the time, don't we? You know, I always laughed in seminary. It was the courses with the simplest title that were hardest ones. Am I right about that? So uh, I'm right about that. It was always the simple ones that just buried you. The, The ones that were complicated weren't that hard, it just seemed like to me. But we judge the book by cover all the time. We're quick to pass sentence on people based on hearsay or rumor. We form our opinions often far too readily. We dismiss those we are called to love and serve sometimes with a self-justifying shrug. We just dismiss it. But never King Jesus, the Lord doesn't look on things like man looks. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And Jesus sees all the way to the truth and nothing is hidden from his gaze. And so indeed in verse number four, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide equity for the meek of the earth. By the way, I don't have time to unpack this. Where is this found? Beatitudes, right? This is, this is Jesus' application in the Beatitudes. And then the second thing that we see about his rule is the great instrument by which the king shall accomplish all this, Isaiah says, is the word of the Lord. 
He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. It's his word. Jesus Christ rules with his word. He speaks, and sinners are saved. Amen? And he speaks, and the wicked are judged. He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive, the mournful broken hearts are healed, the humble poor believe, as the, the, the poem goes. One of the great grounds for joy this, this Christmas season is that King Jesus, who was born to rule, rules us still with the royal scepter of his holy word. The baby in Bethlehem, the man of Calvary, the king on the throne, speaks to us today through his holy scripture. And so therefore, we must read and meditate and soak on his scripture because that is how he speaks to us. Then there's a third thing that we see from this passage, and that is the blessings of his rule. The blessings of his rule. Let's read these verses together. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, verse number six, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, many of us are anticipating the joy of Christmas morning, aren't we? When we remember Jesus' birth. And Isaiah 11 summons us not to just look at Christmas morning, but at the first coming, but to look far ahead to the second coming. That's what I'm looking forward to. The second coming. We can look with a joyful expectation. And, and you've heard it pointed out that Isaac Watts, that we sing with a Christmas, as a Christmas carol, Joy to the World, was actually Watts' meditation on Psalm 98. It was not originally written to celebrate the birth of Christ. It was originally written to celebrate the return of Christ. And I think it's wonderful that at Christmas time, when we remember the birth of Jesus, we're singing a carol that actually looks forward to his return, to the work that he came to accomplish at the first Christmas, he will fulfill in his second coming. It's a pastoral and idyllic setting, isn't it? Where dangerous animals and domestic animals dwell side by side, and the dangerous animals don't eat up the domestic animals. I mean, where in the world could you put wolves and sheep in the same area fold together and expect to have any sheep left the next morning when you get up? But, this is, but in this kingdom, wolves shall dwell with sheep and they won't eat them. Leopards will lie down with goats and calves. The lions with young cows. Little children will lead these animals in pastures and cows and bears will coexist together. Nursing children will play with cobras. A bit old, older children will put their hand on the viper's dens and they won't be hurt. This is a picture of the blessed reign of the Messiah in the restored heavens and earth. 
That's, by the way, what Isaiah 65 says. I saw new heavens and new earth, right? First earth, and guess what? Same imagery is used. This imagery is used again in Isaiah 65. Look it up. This is a picture of the blessed reign of the Messiah and a restored heavens and earth where the fullness of God's favor has come to rest on his people. And it's this picture that Isaiah gives us in verses six to nine of the work finished at last, the final removal of the effects of sin. Aren't you looking forward to that? Man, I am. I cannot wait. There are echoes of Eden that was lost by our first parents' disobedience. Here, they are now restored by Christ's obedience and blood. It is creation absent from death and suffering where all things live together in harmony and security and peace. Isn't that something to long for this Christmas season? Man, is it ever. When verse number nine says, they shall not destroy or hurt on my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Complete coverage of the knowledge of the Lord. Everyone shall know the Lord. So why is the birth of Jesus we're celebrating with all the festivities that surround the Christmas season? Because the baby that was born was filled with the Spirit, perfectly qualified to be King and Savior of us all. Because he reigns in righteousness and he welds the the royal scepter of his word even now in our hearts. And because the baby who was born, the man who was crucified, and the king who reigns on heaven's throne is coming back. Praise be to God. And he'll make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And he will put all things right. Death will die. Sin will be removed. Sorrow will dissolve. And every tear will be wiped from our eyes. And the world to come, the new creation, will be a perfect realm of peace under the reign of the Prince of Peace. The final gift of that first Christmas will be the new creation, the home of righteousness, where we and all those who have gone ahead of us trusting Christ will be marvelously reunited in the adoration of our Savior. And on that day, we will sing joy to the world in a way that we have never sung it before. Lord, I thank you for the first coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I thank you for the promise of the Messiah and how that every promise of the Lord remains true. That uh, sometimes it feels long in, in the delay of your coming, just like it did for the children of Israel. But Lord, you came once, you fulfilled every promise of that coming, and you are coming again, and you will receive us unto yourself, uh, unto yourself and we will live in perfection We will live, Lord, in in complete joy, and the world will be remade. It's beautiful now, but it'll be more marvelous and more beautiful than we can ever imagine or dream. Lord, help us to put off sin, to put off weight, and to bring our focus to bear on our Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we'll be in awe of you and we'll think like you. We'll have the wisdom only 
that can come from the Holy Spirit because uh, we are living our life focused on you. We praise you, Lord, and glorify you in his name. Amen.